0: Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti. And as I record this, I am sitting in a different location, a place that I've never been before. I am actually sitting in an Airbnb right now because if you guys have been following uh, the recent events in my life, as far as uh, my apartment is concerned, you would know that I was in a pretty just sticky situation, not fun, not the worst, but just not fun, (laughs) where we had a leak in our apartment a couple of weeks ago, and due to the damages, I haven't been able to use my bedroom, which has been uh, kind of a bummer since it's my, of course, where I sleep, where I like live, where I work, where I podcast, all the things, and so it's just been not so fun. Um, I've been trying not to complain because, of course, things could be worse, but it has caused just some like... (laughs) not so great emotions I've just felt like I don't really have a real place to work so luckily I've been able to work with my insurance my renter's insurance that I pay for monthly that luckily my dad convinced me to get when I first moved into my apartment you never think you're gonna need it you're always like oh I don't need I don't need insurance I don't need the warranty on my iPhone you know all those things and lo and behold when disaster strikes uh, things you never expect to happen like a random flood in your apartment, you're going to wish that you had renter's insurance. So I'm really happy, feeling very grateful that they were able to pay for this Airbnb, my insurance, not my landlord. My landlord has not been super helpful. I mean, of course, they're they're repairing the leak and everything, but they haven't really been lenient with rent or a lot of things, which I'm working on, really taking a fine-tooth comb through my contract this week to see what I can uh, muster up with them. But anyway, so... On a positive note, this episode of Thick and Thin is going to be uplifting. It's going to be fun, a little silly, just like something lighthearted for your week because things have definitely been just really heavy recently. If you pay attention to the news or are just on social media, you would know by this point that a lot of negative things have been happening. There's a lot of hurt in our world right now. There's a lot of angry people for really valid reasons, angry people, some very angry people just for the sake of being angry people. (laughs) There's been horrible things unfolding politically, socially, every le possible. And so I thought that I would just infuse some good in the world because that is one thing that I can do right now. Even when you're feeling totally powerless with the things that are happening in your world, one thing that you can control besides how you react to the things is what you do with it, what you put into the world, what you turn the negative energy into. And so I thought that I would sit down, well, I thought this morning that I would sit down and research a bunch of really fun things, and it turned into this fabulous episode you're about to listen to. I hope that you have eaten before this episode because it'll definitely make you hungry. It'll definitely make you crave a nice big glass of wine. Trust me, because as I was researching uh, for this episode, I had the urge at like 9 a.m. to pour myself a glass of Cabernet. Like, I'm not joking. So you're going to love this one. I sincerely hope you will. Um, It's definitely not as hard-hitting as some of my previous episodes, which I love doing that. I love getting deep. I love researching stories of really powerful people. But I also love wine and cheese. And so that is what we're talking about in today's episode of Thick and Thin. And I hope that you will absolutely Eat it up, (laughs) literally. So before I get all history Katie on you, I do want to paint a picture that a lot of you guys are probably super familiar with. So imagine this. You are having the girls over for a midweek wine night, Wine Wednesday, if you might call it that, and you're cleaning up your living room, you're fluffing up the pillows, queuing up some rom-coms on Netflix, maybe How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, or... Um, I don't know. I can't even think of rom-coms as I'm saying this. Notebook. I don't know. What else is like super classic? Um, Something Borrowed. John Tucker Must Die. Okay, those are just a few examples. And you realize as you're getting everything ready for the girls to come over, there's one gaping hole in your plan. You have the wine on deck. You have the corkscrew. You got the glasses. You have all of those things but you totally forgot to get the ingredients for your charcuterie board, the one that's going to blow everyone's minds. So you throw on your sneakers, you head to Whole Foods, you book it to the dairy section, you get there and you're browsing through the soft breeze, the hard manchegos, the cheddars, the goudas. You throw a bunch into your cart and then next you move on to finding your favorite compliments, your truffle-infused honey, your fresh fruit, prosciutto, salami, the whole nine yards. You're checking out... And a thought comes over you. Why do we pair wine and cheese? What does a cow-produced, dairy-heavy food like cheese and fruity, light, grape born wine have in common? Why do they go together as a perfect pair? And this very situation happened to me. And naturally, because I'm a very inquisitive person, I'm very curious, I thought that I would add this to our next line of Whatever I call this series, Katie's Curiosities, I think is what I've like just internally landed on. I don't really know what to call it, but it's really a series where I've just asked a bunch of why questions just, you know, in my daily life thought about things like why a white wedding dress? Why do we propose with diamond rings? Things like that. I've done two episodes prior to this one in the series. And so I thought, next up, why not discover the true reason, the secret the myth, the legend behind why we pair wine and cheese. Sounds probably very simple, but there's a lot involved. So I thought I'd look into it and guys, it's going to knock your socks off. So yeah, but even further than that, you know, where did wine come from? It wasn't France, it wasn't Italy, and the truth might surprise you. Consider the things you learned from this episode, a nice little party trick that you can whip out at your next wine night or dinner date when restaurants open up again, where you are, if they're not already open, they're all closed here in um, the place where I live in Los Angeles. But maybe when they're open again, you're on a hinge date. You can really knock their socks off with a story of, you know, why wine and cheese? Why do we pair them? Why wine? Where'd it come from? So yeah, like I said, though, I hope you guys have eaten before listening to this because it will make you hungry or take a nice little pause and go get a glass of wine, sit down and let's chat. So before we dive into the real reason for the wine and cheese pairing, I think it makes more sense to start with wine. Like, where did wine come from? Where is the first known place that wine was discovered? And so back in 2017, just a few years ago, researchers at this dig site out in Georgia, which is a country located at the intersection of Europe and Asia, discovered something pretty remarkable. They found large jars about three feet in height, which were made of something close to mud and adorned with what looked like grapes and a man dancing on the rim of each jar. After some further chemical testing on them, they found that these pottery vessels, at one point in time, had been used to make wine. Researchers think they were used for three different winemaking steps—fermentation, aging, and serving. So this discovery alone dates winemaking back a whole thousand years prior to what historians up until that point had previously thought— to 8,000 BC. Details about this discovery were published in this journal that I read called Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. I'll have it linked in our show notes so you guys can read it for yourself if you'd like. But one of the people responsible for the findings, his name was Stephen, or Stefan, hard to say, but uh, Batuik, said the process for making wine back then wasn't all that different from how it's still made in Georgia today, where the grapes are crushed and the fruit stems and seeds are all fermented together to make wine. And I'd always assumed that wine was first made in Italy or France just based on just the places I've been and the wine tastings I've been on. And I mean, let me tell you, if you go to a wine tasting in Italy, they will definitely make it known that they are like the, the best winemakers of all time. They are like the greatest and have all these roots in winemaking. But who would have thought? I definitely didn't know that wine was actually made in a different place, in Georgia, And so as I'm recording this in 2021, Georgia is the first known place to have had evidence that wine was created. Who knows, in the next few years, they might find some more dig sites and, you know, prove that to be wrong and find some other place. But as of now, Georgia was the first. They drank wine there to celebrate births and left wine cups and pitchers in tombs for the dead to take on with them. And so from its roots in Georgia, wine culture spread like wildfire across the globe. Evidence to suggest wine production was also found in China, which dates back to about 7,000 BC, and Armenia in 4,000 BC. And the oldest known winery, which dates back to 4,100 BC, was actually found in a group of caves outside the Armenian village of Areni. So imagine going to a winery, like sitting down, having a wine tasting in a cave, like a literal group of caves. I'm picturing like a dark like moody situation with some like light with you know lantern light and like cave drawings and things like that. I mean, honestly sounds like quite the experience. So, wine didn't make its debut in Sicily until 4000 BC. So, full 4000 after Georgia. And this was shocking to me. I just for whatever reason assumed that the first place that wine had to have been discovered was Italy or France or something like that, and I was wrong. So, Georgia was apparently the birthplace as far as we know now. And word about the effects of drinking fermented fruits spread rapidly, and people made up so many different legends surrounding it. I'm going to share a story, and it has to do with suicide, so quick trigger warning. If you feel triggered by stories about suicide, please click off now. In one notable story that I found, it's a Persian legend, a king banished this woman of his harem, um, a beautiful princess, to life in exile for whatever reason. Unclear why, but this caused the banished woman to understandably become very sad, and she contemplated ending her own life. She wanted to poison herself. And so she went to the king's warehouse to find something to take to end her life. And the woman found this jar in the king's warehouse that said poison on the label. And apparently inside of the jar, it contained remnants of grapes that had spoiled and were now deemed unusable, undrinkable. And so they just assumed that they were poisoned. And after drinking the fermented wine, instead of death, she found that her spirits were instantly lifted. She took her discovery to the king who became so obsessed with this new drink that he not only accepted the woman back into his harem, but also decreed that all grapes grown in his kingdom would be devoted to winemaking only, which is really interesting. So I read that one. There was a bunch of other ones, but that's just one notable one. And I could do a whole podcast episode on the history of wine in each country. I found so much good stuff from all different places, but for the sake of time, I'll give a little spark notes list of notable humble beginnings of winemaking that I found. Uh, from different parts of the world. So number one, in ancient Greece, the host of a dinner party would take the very first sip of the wine at the table to show his guests that it wasn't poisoned. Apparently there was history of wine often being poisoned and so the host would always take the first sip And the act of doing this was actually where the phrase, drinking to one's health, you know, when people cheers, they often say to one's health or to to health, to everyone's health, things like that. Um, That is where the phrase came from, ancient Greece. Okay, number two, the top three producers of wine in the world are France, Spain, and Italy to date. And the US, primarily California, where I'm sitting right now, ranks number four, followed by China in fifth place. So that's interesting. That's probably why I thought that like France and Italy were definitely the birthplace of wine, but I was very wrong. And number three, making a toast with a glass of wine at one point in time was a literal piece of toast, like an actual piece of toast. In ancient Rome, wine was known to be really, really acidic. And I read some stuff. I'm not sure if this is the reason why, but I read some things here and there that said that the fresher, the wine, like people oftentimes would drink it before it was fully ready Like it wasn't fully ready, and so it was super bitter and acidic um, because people were just so excited to drink the wine. I don't know if that's the reason, but back in Rome, it was super acidic, and so drinkers would add a piece of toasted bread into their wine cup to cut through the acid as they drank, and so they literally put toast in their wine. So who knows if that's the reason why we say it's a toast. I don't know, but that's the third fun fact. And another random fun fact that I found while I was looking into the history of wine actually has to do with antioxidants like healthy stuff. So when people tell you that wine is good for you, they're not totally completely lying. You actually need to drink seven glasses of orange juice or 20 glasses of apple juice in order to get the same amount of antioxidants that wine has. So that's really interesting. Every time you're drinking your wine and your friends or whoever's giving you trouble for it, just say, you know, I'm getting my antioxidants, my daily dose of antioxidants. So yeah, those facts, um, I'll have the uh, sources for those linked in the show notes. A lot of good stuff online, but I just plucked out my most favorite little pieces, my little tidbits. So yeah, so so far we've learned a lot about where wine came from, just like little bits and pieces here and there from history. But why on earth, we're going to get to the nitty gritty now, why was it ever paired with cheese? Why cheese? And the short answer to the question, um, acidity and the attraction of opposites. So if you've heard the phrase, if you're familiar with the phrase, buy on apple, sell on cheese... Congratulations, you are a total wine connoisseur. You are smarter than me because I had no idea what this phrase could possibly mean the first time I read it this morning when I stumbled into it. I was like, it sounds so simple when you say it out loud buy on bread or buy on apple. Both of them are used interchangeably in a lot of different instances. Sell on cheese. I'm just like, what could that possibly mean? But it really gives you a picture or paints a picture of why cheese is used so widely with wine or paired, I should say. So first, before we dive into this simple yet complex phrase, a mini science lesson. Okay. So there's a few different kinds of acid that is important when talking about wine. There's a few different kinds, but two that I'm going to discuss are malic acid and lactic acid are two totally different kinds of acid that create two totally different tastes in your mouth that, when paired together, create the perfect harmony of flavors. Malic acid is harsher and lactic acid is more buttery and smooth. So keep that in mind as we talk about buy on apple, sell on cheese. This has actually been a saying in the wine industry largely used since the 70s, first in France apparently. And so here's kind of a deep dive. Some foods, like bread, like apple, keep your palate fresh so you can better taste and decide if you'd like to buy a wine or you'd like a wine's taste, while cheese masks the taste a bit because it has that certain type of acid, that buttery lactic acid that kind of doesn't totally cancel out the malic acid in all cases, but it complements it. It makes it a beautiful harmony of flavors. So, some cheeses do this more than others. They smooth out that acidic taste of a really strong tasting, sharp wine. So, the fats and the proteins, all those things that exist in the cheeses that you're eating, that you're picking out at Whole Foods, soften up your taste buds. They kind of block out that acidity. That wine can have. So in the phrase, buy on apple, sell on cheese, a wine seller, a wine merchant can expect that an apple or something largely flavorless, like bread, will bring out the defects in a wine. So if a person's, you know, trying a wine uh, with, you know, paired with water or paired with bread or apples or just things like that, um, a lot of times they, they might not like a wine as much as when they're tasting it with a cheese or something that will improve the taste, make it even more harmonious and delicious. So this is something to keep in mind when you're trying out a new wine in a store and, you know, they're giving you a little sample, a little sample cup of wine, a little sample cup. Cheese, and you're like, Whoa, I really love this wine! and you get home and it tastes different. Like that, I, it just blew my mind because I'm the biggest queen of samples. I feel like right now in COVID times, they're hard to find and rightfully so, but keep that in mind the next time you're at a wine tasting. It's all a marketing ploy. As we've learned from the Diamond Industry episode, everything is modern and pre-modern marketing. So when you're selling wine, serve cheese. When you're buying wine, eat apples. <laughs> the word selling also in you know our situation can be swapped with serving too. So that's why charcuterie... Cheese specifically has become so popular over the centuries, you know, as a pairing with wine. It just makes it taste better. (laughs) They balance out our mouths, which sounds really freaking weird now that I've said it out loud, but hear me out. Have you ever found yourself drinking wine and thinking, wow, my mouth feels really dry. Like it feels like the Sahara Desert in my mouth. This is rooted in science. It's due to a little something called a tannin, spelled T-A-N-N-I-N. Tannins are actually naturally occurring, bitter tasting compounds that exist inside grape skins, seeds and stems like everything associated with a grape and they're also found in things in nature like wood bark and leaves and a bunch of other things that the list just goes on but their purpose in nature is to communicate to animals in the wild that the plants fruits or materials inside of wherever they exist aren't ripe or ready to be eaten yet so it's kind of like a warning to the animal like don't eat this it's not ready yet that sort of thing so if you've ever bitten into an unripe pear or a plum, you know what I'm talking about, that weird kind of mouth-coating dry feeling you get in your mouth, that is because of the tannins. So with wine, sometimes your mouth can feel really dry, similarly, because of the tannins, because of the same thing, Um, similar to the plums and the the pears. And there's some other fruits that I've experienced this with, where I just feel that weird like dry mouth sensation. But as you know, this feeling is super temporary. Like Once you wash out your mouth or regain your saliva, the feeling goes away. So according to this article that I read in the International Business Times, there are proteins in fatty foods like cheese that will bond with the tannins themselves rather than our mouth. So you know, pairing cheese, which is high in fat, with wine, which has tannins, makes your mouth feel smooth and less dry than it would if you were just drinking the wine on its own. This was so interesting. I'm like, wow, that's so right. Because after sometimes when I'm sitting and drinking like, you know, having a night and drinking like a full bottle of red wine by myself that sort of night, I feel like my mouth is so dry and I'm so dehydrated. And that just like makes total sense. I feel a whole lot better when I'm just eating something. I have a nice like charcuterie spread on the table in front of me. Like I just feel like it's a much better situation for everyone involved anyway that was another little tidbit of information that I found that I thought was so interesting and so this you know paired with the acid conversation from earlier basically sums it up that sums up why human beings like ourselves uh, girls nights often have wine and cheese I'm definitely no expert of course I only turned 21 like four years ago Not that I wasn't uh, sipping wine every once in a while before. I mean, come on, I used to do communion. But I found a lot of evidence online from sommeliers, so like wine connoisseurs, experts, and scientists alike that have all basically said the same thing. Foods that sit on opposite sides of the spectrum of taste and acidity often create this harmonious experience, this explosion in your mouth, which... I imagine, you know, when I'm visualizing it to look kind of like fireworks, that fireworks moment that cartoon characters have when they taste something really good. And so this explains the peculiar craving that I often have to eat chocolate and cheese together. Like anyone else feel this sometimes when they're eating a lot of cheese? They're like, wow, I'd really love something sweet right now. I'd really love some chocolate, like dark kind of bitter chocolate. That explains that. You know, opposites attract in many situations. So yeah, that's kind of the um, short spark version of why we drink wine and eat cheese, why we pair them together, why charcuterie is such a hot thing, especially right now. I feel like for whatever reason in 2020 especially, charcuterie became such a hot item, like a hot thing. And I personally love charcuterie and making it because... I am not the best cook. I need a lot of instruction when I cook. You guys know this. You've heard how many times I've talked about like HelloFresh and meal kits because I am just at a loss when I enter a kitchen. And so charcuterie is the perfect solution to that. It's all about curation. You go to the store and you curate the perfect ingredients. It's definitely something that takes, you know, trial and error and figuring out what you know, kind of creating something for your audience. You need to know your audience when you're crafting a charcuterie board. And I've definitely had some misses over the the year of like, okay, people didn't like that ingredient. We will nix that for next time, that sort of thing. It's very trial and error, but it's definitely not going out of style anytime soon. I feel like charcuterie will be an essential for wine nights till the end of time. So that is why it's good to have all of these fun little anecdotes and tips up your sleeve. So I thought that I would spend the rest of the episode talking about charcuterie, my favorite tips, and the wines that I like drinking, just some little quotes and things that I found because, you know, I'm sticking with the theme. <laughs> We're going on with it. Hope you've gotten yourself a glass of wine at this point if you are of age. I always forget that that uh, 21 is legal drinking age because I feel like I've been 21 forever, but it's only been four years. Time's been going like slow for me recently. I feel like I – okay, I just turned 25 in October, but I feel like 25 is just like the age that I felt like I've been for a long time. Anyway, I am known as the charcuterie girl. Like, I always bring charcuterie spreads to my little friend gatherings when gatherings were kosher and they were huge. I would always bring a massive one. I went back to my college house um, for alumni or for an alumni sort of situation. And my contribution, I just like brought a full, what I did was I got a big like roll of brown paper. I covered the table in brown paper and covered the table with charcuterie with like various things, you know, the grapes, the the different cheeses, the, the the meats, all the things. And I'm going to get into my best tips for charcuterie, but I do want to talk about the origin of charcuterie for me. So I actually started doing charcuterie boards because of my mom. So my mom is known at all of our family gatherings, our Thanksgivings, our Christmases, things like that, um, to bring this giant board with her. It's When I say giant, it's actually giant. I'm, I don't really have a good gauge of like inches and feet and things like that, but I would say it, it definitely covers like a whole table. I'm trying to like visualize it now. It's huge. It's circular. I don't know where she got it from, but it's like a beautiful board. I hope she passes it on to me someday. Like I definitely need this board right now. I have like a smaller version. I love circular boards. That's definitely a pro tip. I feel like it's hard to make charcuterie look bad. Like if it's on a circular board, it always looks good. So she always brings this massive board and this has been going on for like, I don't know, like six years now that she's been doing this. And she's always known, like when my mom walks in the door, like it's charcuterie time. And so I learned from her, I learned from the best. And from there I've become among my friends, the one that always brings the charcuterie, which is good. It's a benefit for me because I am horrible when it comes to cooking. Like I've definitely tried and I've gotten better over the years but I am just not gifted in the kitchen. I never have been. It just never comes naturally to me. Like even when I'm reading instructions, it takes me like 10 times as long to make a simple dish than it should because I am just like critical and like over analyzing every last instruction. Like I'm never one of those people that can just eyeball something. I always need to like meticulously measure things out. So cooking has always been stressful for me, but charcuterie making and like arranging a board isn't really cooking. It's, you know, it's, it's curation. It feels like I'm putting together a mood board or something super creative. So it comes first nature to me. Definitely. First nature. Is that what you say? It comes naturally. Me, how about that? So I learned from my mom. I've been doing charcuterie ever since. You know, this year especially, I've gotten really good at it because of quarantine. I was like really like I got all the books on it. I was following accounts that are dedicated to this this sort of thing. There's uh, a few that I really love. That cheese plate on Instagram is really great because it it walks you through like step by steps of how this woman makes her boards and she's so good at it. I think she even put out a book recently on how she makes her boards. Her boards are always so beautiful and so creative. So I followed a bunch of accounts and I've really tried my hands at it. And it's been really fun, honestly. So I do want to talk about a few of my favorite wines though, because aside from the charcuterie, the wine is also important. So my favorite kinds of wine as of now, again, I'm young, I'm not an expert, but my favorite types of wine when it comes to white, I love Sauvignon Blanc, I love Pinot Grigio, I don't like Chardonnay, but some Chardonnays, I will say, some are really good. Others, I really don't like. The ones that my parents like, I don't like. Whenever I come home, they know to stock the fridge with something other than Chardonnay. Like, whenever they ask me what I want, I'm like, anything other than Chardonnay. I also don't like. Uh, what is that one wine that I used to drink from bags in college? Like, do you remember? I don't know if everyone did this in college, but there were like wine bags passed around pregames and I had so many horrible situations of like throwing up that wine and it was always like pink. Like I think what's pink? Pink Moscato. Okay. So Moscato, I don't like either. It just like, it's too sweet. I don't like when a wine is too sweet, but I don't like when it's too dry either, if that makes sense. So I love a Sauvignon Blanc when it's not too sweet. I love a Pinot Grigio. When it comes to red, I love a Cabernet. I love Merlot. And my favorite wine brands as of right now, I love New Zealand brands, New Zealand-based brands. Oyster Bay, freaking love. It's a good budget brand. Cloudy Bay, if you're looking to spend a bit more, it's more of a top shelf. So, if you're looking for a good gift, Cloudy Bay wine, so, so good. Matua is also another New Zealand based soft blanc that I love. It's also super affordable. Um, And when it comes to red, I love 19 Crimes. That is my favorite wine brand ever. I love 19 Crimes. And it also, so each of the labels comes with this like interactive, you can connect it to an app and it will bring the label to life. Another fun party trick, you can um, download the app and the bottle will literally talk to you on the phone. Like it gives you their story, the person who committed the crime and it's really interesting. So 19 Crimes is amazing. They also, the, the wine also tastes really good. And then also for red, I love Josh and I love Ménage à Trois. So those are my three reds that I like um, that I just know off the top of my head. Like when I go to a store, these are the ones that I look for. When I'm sitting at a restaurant, it's a bit different. I definitely always discuss with the waiter and try to make sure that I will like what they're bringing me because I, can be picky sometimes um I'm never one to send it back though I will I will try it I will try something you know so those are my favorite wines uh definitely if you guys have any favorites that you want to pass on to me that are budget friendly because girl is always trying to you know not spend top dollar on wine because I do go through a lot of it in my household my friends and I love it definitely DM me your suggestions I'm always looking for new ones always looking to branch out so please let me know in the DMs So moving on to some charcuterie tips, some things that I've learned through my trial and error of making cheese boards. So number one, this is definitely like, you know, personal opinion, like what you prefer to do. I've found most success with my boards when I put the cheese on first and then I add the fruit and then the meat, then the nuts and garnish. And my tip is I always, I mean, this is again, personal preference. I don't mind when my food touches. I find that not many other people do either care when it comes to charcuterie that being said um so what I do is I make sure that there's no space left on the board like I fill in every little nook and cranny with something and the best filler things are like I said nuts if no one's allergic make sure no one's allergic because that's definitely an issue with a lot of people I'm aware of that so nuts are great um also like dried fruits I think look beautiful and a lot of them are nice and tiny. So you can really like wedge them in there and put them in there. I love that. And you'll also just find like, I found like dried or like chickpea little snacks that I'll put in there too, things like that. The majority of the board is cheese, is fruits, you know, and I try to make it even. Sometimes I see a lot of boards with just way too much fruit and I feel like it needs to be kind of an even distribution in my opinion. And then I'll put the meat in there as well. And I usually... Keep the rest of it, like what I don't use, in the fridge. Like if I'm bringing it somewhere, I'll bring the stuff that I didn't use so I can add as it starts getting depleted a little bit. Um, then my next tip that I have is pre-slice the cheese, like pre-cut it up on the board. Aside from the uh, like the brie and the softer cheeses, sometimes I feel like people want to get their own portion with that and it's obviously harder to cut. So what I do with that, I'll actually slice the top off of the brie so it's easier to dip. And a lot of times I'll, depending on what kind it is or what, you know, what I should do with it, I'll put it in the oven for a little bit. I'll melt some stuff on top of it, some nuts or some jams, things like that, some fig jam. So that is a big tip. Pre-slicing the cheese is important because you want it to be as easy to enjoy as possible. You kind of want to like give cues to the person that's about to eat it, like what to do with it, because people will sometimes get super intimidated by a cheese board, especially if it's like a social gathering. They don't want to be like doing something wrong so make it as easy as possible for them like put the crackers or the bread i often like to cut up baguette like fresh baguette from the store i'll put it right next to the board so people know what to do with it get little plates if necessary things like that make it as easy as possible for people to enjoy you know next tip truffle honey two freaking words oh my gosh this stuff is game changing so they sell little baby jars of this at whole foods they sell them other places too, but I know that Whole Foods has these little baby jars. But you'll find it's like a little tiny jar for 20 bucks, which is so ridiculous. Truffle is expensive, just like the nature of truffle it is expensive. The way that I found to get a cheaper alternative is to buy a wedge of honey, like a honeycomb, And get it from an ethical place. I like um, Savannah Bee Honey because I actually don't know off the top of my head the exact mission they have, but I know that they are like cruelty-free to bees and they actually donate proceeds to saving the bees or things like that. I know that they're a good brand. So I get like Savannah Bee Honey or something like that. I usually get like the giant one and I'll cut up, like I'll ration it because, you know, honey can be overpowering so people don't love a ton of it like on the board So I'll use a little bit of that. And then I bought um, this bigger jar from Whole Foods as well, this truffle oil. You'll find it in like the baking or the cooking oil section. And if you put like a few drops, like a little goes a long way of the truffle oil into the honey, it makes truffle honey, but it's way cheaper. So definitely explore that option. The little jar is like just a robbery, $20 for the little jar, but it's worth it. Believe me, truffle honey, like two, just the combination of that is literally just orgasmic. Okay. It's delicious. Also, I mentioned Costco earlier. Costco has a lot of stuff for super cheap, like for large quantities. So definitely consider that if you're having a large gathering, definitely consider Costco. They have this delicious baked brie, like that's pre- put together with the fig and the fig jam stuff and the nuts, like pre-put together, all you do is pop it in the oven. That was a game changer for me. I bought it for me and my roommates and it was divine. And it looks like I like really went through effort to make something when in actuality, I just put it in the oven and it was heaven. So definitely consider that. Also, like I said earlier, when I was discussing how sometimes I crave chocolate after eating cheese, I learned that this wasn't just me. I actually, on one of my recent boards that I made for my friends, I put dark chocolate, little, um, like Whole Foods had this little like pre-bundled little like sliced up dark chocolate. So I put that on there. Total game changer. It also looked really nice on the board. So definitely consider that. And yeah, those are my like top line charcuterie tips. I have some videos on my Instagram feed on YouTube about just kind of showing the process of how I do it. So definitely check those out, but I really don't think there's any wrong way to do charcuterie. That might be a bold statement, um, but as long as it doesn't look like Lunchables, (laughs) I'm just kidding. Lunchables are great. No wonder I loved Lunchables as a kid because it's like a younger charcuterie board. Like I was eating miniature charcuterie boards as a kid and I had no idea this would be a passion of mine someday. So (laughs) who would have thought? But yeah, honestly, just having fun with it. Just thinking about the taste, thinking about the different like pairing of opposites, the different, like the sweet and the salty and the savory, all of those things together, like the sweet, like the grapes and the fruits, and then the nuts, the salty nuts, the bitter chocolate, like just pairing all of those different tastes will just wow people no matter what it looks like. So Definitely focus on what you're putting on the board too, like the taste, not just the look. Some people can get too caught up on the look of it and totally skimp out on the taste. So definitely keep that in mind. Okay, (laughs) so those are my charcuterie tips. I could literally go on all freaking day about this, but that is what I suggest. And I'm going to conclude our little wine and cheese chat with two quotes from two of the greats from history. So first up, Galileo says, wine is sunlight held together by water just poetic. And then Benjamin Franklin said, wine is constant proof that God loves to see us happy. I'm going to consider that every time that I uh, wake up with a wine hangover, like a head hangover. Wine hangovers are the freaking worst. I don't know about you guys, but they just go straight to your head. But you know, it's just worth it. It tastes so freaking good. Anyway, so now I'm feeling super inspired to go pour myself a nice fat glass of red and find a block of manchego somewhere. So I must part ways with you all, but definitely check out the links in the description and the show notes to all of my sources. If you want to read up more on the wine industry and how wine has been paired with cheese and why. And I hope you guys like this episode. I hope I, you know, infused some lighthearted fun little facts into your week and you enjoyed it. So let me know in the DMs if you want to hear more like this. Share to your Instagram story if possible. Let's grow our community here on Thick and Thin. And I will talk to you guys all in next week's episode. Bye.